that was not six years wasted. I learned so much, but I needed to step and do something new. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. Today, I'm talking to middle grade author, Sarah McGuire. Sarah McGuire is a math teacher who sailed around the world aboard a floating college campus. She writes fairy tales and fun fantasy and would love to open a wardrobe and stumble into another world. She wishes Florida had mountains, but she lives there anyways with her husband and their family. So please welcome Sarah to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is the first podcast I've ever done, so I'm kind of excited. Oh, exciting. (laughs) Yes. Nervous. Like I'm going to mess something up and like your whole podcast series will crash or something because of me. Oh my gosh, no. (laughs) No, I'm trying to make it pretty foolproof for guests. So so we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? For me, the moment when I became interested in writing is, oh my goodness, I I don't even remember the year. It would have been before 2000, but I'm currently a teacher, but before teaching in this sort of nine-year gap between high school and college for me, I owned a cleaning business, which sounds glamorous, but it just means that you clean the public bathrooms and you do the paperwork. So it's not like (laughs) a, um, so I actually cleaned the Barnes and Noble. For a younger sister, I was trying to write the story that I had begun telling her. And so that's kind of when I became interested in writing. And then there was a very clear moment a couple years after that when I realized the kind of writing I was doing was different from writing to get published and then deciding that, okay, we're going to, we're going to try this. Um, And writing to get published, I don't think I thought about writing to get published until 2006 but yes, I, I remember these moments of thinking, okay, I'm enjoying this concept of storytelling and then realizing I had so much more to go and then wanting to get published. Awesome. So can you tell me a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author? You know, it, it could have been cleaning Barnes and Noble for several years, but I mean, there is something kind of like doing this very basic task, like you know, wiping down the windows or vacuuming or, or seriously, the first thing I saw in the morning was the public bathrooms, but you're, <laughs> you're moving past all of these bookshelves and seeing all of these books. And I, you know, read lots of them. And at that time I was also mentally revising and working on these stories I was writing. And so you have these, this moment where you're like, well, maybe I could. And then I think the moment when I decided I was going to push for publication was when, you know, I'd sort of had this dream all along. And then in 2006, I decided I'd join SCBWI and find a critique group. And for me, that was, it's not like a specific moment, but I think that was the year where I made the decisions that led to, I know that this is going to be a long haul. It's going to take me a while to get there. And these, I'm going to do what I need to do so that I can produce something that would get me published. So it's not like there was this amazing moment. I think I just realized that I was ready to do the work that needed to be done to get there. So from there, you joined a critique group. How did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how the business works, how to go about it, how to query, everything like that? 
Oh my goodness, back in 2006. So, I mean, they still publish them, but like the thick books about, yeah, the writer's, you know, guide to. So I remember, you know, flipping through that and having like one example of a query letter and it's seeming like this just crazy magical thing that I could never do. So doing that and then sort of flipping through the back of agents and editors and putting stars next to the people I hoped, you know, I would get. So that was how I did a lot of research. And then I think whew, a couple of years later, well, SCBWI helped a lot. They're super good about educating their folks. But I also started reading Miss um, Snark's blog. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and went through several blogs with that. But again, just that I just pretty much tried to read whatever I could about the industry and publishing and um, so then what happened can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract yes um so I worked oof oh goodness so you always have those things that you're thinking oh my goodness I tried that so I had taken this like little kid story that I had written for my sister over and over again and it maybe was like 2500 words and had sent it to be critiqued in an SCBWI conference. And it was Emma Dryden, I think, who was very kind, incredibly kind in her response about how this would not be work. And, and I remember thinking, understanding that her, her comment that it was way too big for a picture book. And I realized this was a fairy tale retelling. It would work as a picture book. So I'm like, I'll make it a novel. So I spent six years making that a novel a, a rather bad novel <laughs> that I learned on for six years. You know, I, my first critique group that I met through SCBWI, I remember being pretty proud of it. And wordcraft has always come easily to me. Telling a good story with that is not as, as good or as not as intrinsic a, a talent of mine. So I remember but feeling pretty good about myself and then turning these first pages into this critique group, meeting them for the first time. And one of the women being... Like I, um, I know that we're supposed to care about this girl, but I really don't like, she's the main character. Right. And I was like, yes. And she's like, I don't care what happens to her. And so, you know, I had to learn so much. So I spent six years on that novel and also did the Nevada SCBWI mentorship program with Ellen Hopkins. She wasn't my mentor, but she pretty much worked to create that program. Did that, ran that novel through it. Emma Dryden was actually there, so it was fun to go back to her and say, thank you so much for rejecting me with this background and <laughs> made me revise and got me here. But even after all of that, it still wasn't publishable. And so I remember in 2012 thinking I need to start something new mm. and being kind of horrified at that because you've spent six years working on something. Revision is always easier for me. And so to step away from revision and to kind of admit to myself that I couldn't revise my way out of this sort of mess I had made. And not that that was a bad thing. It's just, I think I wrote that novel as I was learning and that I had baked in so many things into the plot and into character development that I wasn't skilled enough to untangle that I needed to write something new. I love that you're talking about this because it happens to so many writers and it's not something that we tend to openly talk about because it feels like a little embarrassing. But then that means that when the newer writers are coming up and they're experiencing the same thing, they think that they should be embarrassed and you shouldn't be embarrassed because no. so many of us go through that same process. No, I, so it was actually a conversation with my 
sister that solidified it. So my family is very working class. My sister, who's right under me, grew up working in exchange to ride horses, working in exchange at a flight school so that she could fly. And then at like 20 something decided she wanted to sing opera. So like the only opera we knew was like Kill the Wabbit. Like that was it. So (laughs) she started receiving classical training, won a scholarship to a university and was doing that. And I remember talking to her about how she was giving a recital and she was not going to sing songs from two years earlier because she couldn't sing those songs without reverting back to the incorrect technique Mm. that she'd learned with those songs. And that every time she went back to those songs, her technique was wrong. And it was a light bulb for me because I realized that was what my entire first novel was. The, The technique was wrong. It's not six years of time lost. I don't view it that way at all. I learned so much. But again, there were so many things kind of baked into that novel that I couldn't fix. Or as soon as I went back to that story, I went back to those bad decisions. Makes it sound like an addiction or something. But (laughs) I went back to that. And so the only way I could get better was to step out and start over completely. And so that's what that new novel was. So I don't... I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's so important. That was not six years wasted. I learned so much, but I needed to step and do something new. And so, yeah, I wrote this. I was at a workshop and I'm a huge fan of workshops, especially if you've had contact with a workshop leader that you know you connect with. And connect can be so, um, it just means they talk about story in a way that you understand that makes your writing better. And so I had a workshop at Highlights that I'd gotten a scholarship to and wrote a rough draft of my story over a summer because, again, I'm a teacher. And then that was Valiant, and that was the story that became my debut novel. So I think I wrote that summer of 2012. I had feedback on that manuscript by September of 2012, revised until February of 2013 when I sent it out. And then had an agent a few months later. So, And then your agent sold that book just a couple of months after that as well, right? That is correct. I did not realize how fast everything was. <laughs> Anytime you finally get to the point where you're sending your work out, it's going to seem horribly slow. Like unless they are responding within 30 seconds to your emails, it's going to feel like forever. So it felt long. Um, there's a whole lot of refreshing email, but yes, it was it was pretty quick. So. Yeah. So you got an agent, you got a book deal Mm -hmm. and then everything was rosy after that, right? Oh, it was fabulous. A straight shot to the big time. (laughs) I had a fabulous experience working with my editor. I loved her, loved working with her, love her dearly still. And let's see, I think it was January of 2015. So we had done multiple revisions, I think probably two major revisions. We were getting ready to do page proofs. I'm at work and I get an email from my editor, Allison. She's like, can we talk? And my naive self, I wasn't super aware of what was going on in publishing at the time, but I I knew there was like a big award in January. And I was like, what if I won it? Well, my book wasn't out and I was hoping I'd won the Newberry. (laughs) I mean, like, I I can't even... (laughs) I'm not ashamed of having put a novel away, but I am a little ashamed of hoping that this was that call. Anyway, so she asked if we could talk before school. And as soon as she answered, you know, I called her as soon as she answered, I knew something was wrong. And she told me that the 
publisher I was with, Egmont USA, was closing and that she had to pack her desk in two weeks. Mm. And so we had two weeks to get this book rolled out while they were going to do everything they could to help the release. It was going to be very different from what we had anticipated. So that was my, that was my debut novel. And so I remember not really having time to absorb that because I had a class starting in five minutes. And so algebra two or something like that. It was, I think three days later that I kind of processed everything that was going on. And I was, oh goodness, I was at work meeting with an administrator about something stupid. And I realized I'd made a mistake and I started crying. And I'm one of those people, I'm so good. Like I can put a pin in it for however long because I don't ever want my classes to know that something's going wrong. But when I finally get to the point of crying, I can't stop. And so I remember I'd been looking down at these notes and kind of pulling them closer and closer to my face until I was like kind of peeking over these pages, trying to pretend like I wasn't crying. And this administrator looking at me like, we were just talking about like how this was just a day late and I just need you to sign. I'm like, I am so sorry. And But I remember, I think the main thing that I wanted was something to do. And so there were, I don't even remember the number of us, although I remember many of the names, nine or 10 authors with Egmont USA who our books were going to be published still kind of parentless. And so we kind of banded together to create Egmont's last list and have some sort of publicity or awareness for us as we went out. So or as our books were released. So yes, that was, yeah, the straight shot to the big time that I experienced. So (laughs) it was trial by fire, but also I think I was also amazed at, well, two things struck me. One was that it's really easy to feel sorry for yourself, but I had friends who had signed with Egmont USA who had it worse. So there was somebody who had signed with them, who even had um, the advanced reader copy and then everything was given back. She was It wasn't going to get published. Mm. So folks who thought they were safe, who no longer had a chance to get their book out, had to start all over again. All of the wonderful folks I'd worked there with there were jobless and trying to find jobs. And the other thing that stood out to me, though, was just the ridiculous generosity of people in the publishing industry. Because I had folks that I'd run into at a random conference, you know, reaching out checking to see how I was doing to see if there was anything that they could do to help. And when a lot of us authors who'd kind of been dealing with this were talking, we thought maybe we can give people something to do to help. If we create this sort of group, then maybe they would be willing to talk about us, you know, when our books are released and we don't have, you know, a publisher pushing it through the way we would have before. That whole experience was something else, but (laughs) it was kind of nice in the sense that you know, if you can survive that, you can survive anything. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I mean, there was the downside of not having fabulous sales numbers and being like, you know, I did everything I could, but I survived, had other books. (laughs) So it's all good. It is time. Can you read that successful query letter for us? I can. Yes. I was about to say this is a version and I had kind of weird querying experience as well. My experience was I had sent in my first pages of this manuscript as I was working at it to conferences to have different agents look at it. So I had met with this agent. She had been intrigued with it and had asked me to send it to her when it was ready. And I think I sent it to her almost 10 months after she asked for it. But this is the, this is the email I sent to her. And then I also had a query that I pasted into the website of the agent that I ended up 
going with, but this is the version of the letter. So hello, here it is. I've been revising till I'm cross-eyed, but I hope this will do. I'm going to paste a quick pitch based on your feedback so that you have an idea of the story. So when Savile's father drags her to Regan, she hopes she will finally find work and that she'll be free of him. She never expected that he'd fall ill or that she'd have to dress as his apprentice to keep them alive. But when Savile encounters two scouts from an approaching army of giants and outwits them, she finds herself thrown into the middle of a possible war. Regan's timid king is so desperate to find someone to stand between him and giants that he declares Savile a champion and the future husband of Princess Lyssa. An hour later, the king discovers that Savile is a girl. A week later, they learn that Savile's encounter with the giants has only strengthened the army's resolve to conquer their city. Determined to save those she loves, Savile works with Lord Ferris, the assistant to a deposed advisor. She discovers that the key to saving Regan lies in the giant's distant past and in claiming the title she never wanted, the brave tailor, the champion of Regan. So that was, that was the query letter I sent written with that agent's help because frankly the one that I had posted with like the pages for critique was wretched not that that's an amazing query but <laughs> it, it was better than the first versions of it thank you for sharing for anyone who wants to read it the link is available in the show notes so you can read a copy of that all right now it is time for the quick round I call it author DNA okay just like classification so we put writers in so just give a quick answer for each of these questions okay are you a pantser or a plotter? I'm really kind of both. Because I do retellings, I have to hit certain plot points, but I also like to pants between some of those major, major plot points. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Early drafts, I underwrite. Later drafts, I overwrite. And I wish I could find a perfect mix between the two, but I can't. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at nighttime? Oh, nights. Definitely nights. <laughs> Not a question. When starting with a new story, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Retellings, I work primarily with plots. And even the one I'm working on right now, that was probably concept and then plot and then characters. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> tea is not strong enough. I haven't. I wish I could be so refined, but I need the, I need the good <laughs> stuff. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Sound. It can be background noise or like a playlist. I like coffee shops. It's horribly cliched, but I do enjoy having sort of background noise and chaos going on. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I want to get it right, but I know that I have to get it down. So I'm writing and kind of continually frustrated myself as I with myself as I go. <laughs> what tools or software do you use to draft? I pretty much just use Microsoft Word, just basic word processing. I do have ugly notebooks that I fill with a lot of thoughts. I can't write in pretty notebooks because then I feel insecure that what I'm putting in them isn't good enough for the pretty notebooks. So I need kind of like crappy notebooks and I just will scribble all kinds of thoughts, but I'll draft in, in Word. You know, it's funny. We had a class at the library in bullet journaling and one of the instructors, she said the first thing that she does when she gets a new bullet journal is she flips to a random page and just makes a scribble mark because then it makes her feel like it's okay if she messes up. Yes, it is so true. I remember one time getting this gorgeous journal and thinking I was going to do wonderful stuff with it. And I couldn't because it was like leather bound and whatever you're putting <laughs> in there has to be like really profound, right? And I just need to be able to 
Yeah. So totally get that. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising, hands down revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Both. That's not very helpful for the DNA series, is it? It truly is both. (laughs) So so I, I tend to think in sequential order, but I don't have much time to write as a teacher. So sometimes if I don't know what to write next and I know what to write three chapters down, I do that because I have 45 minutes to write and I need to do it. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I am a noisy introvert. So I can be I can be extroverted when I need to be, but I prefer being introverted. All right. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We're going to talk about that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized? Did you overcome them? How did they shake out? I think my biggest worry was just that I wouldn't get published. Like you would put all this work in and that you wouldn't get a book. So I suppose that wasn't realized, although having, again, like the publisher kind of folding afterwards was pretty close to my biggest worry. Honestly, I think perhaps that might still be the biggest insecurity I have that will imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it that, well, I got that one published, but they didn't really know how bad I was. Or, (laughs) you know, then I got the next one published, but I don't know about the next. So I'd say perhaps that was my biggest concern that I wouldn't pull it off. And I suppose underneath that, well, there's a bit of hubris in this, I suppose. You know, I'll see, I'll see people who get so big that they stop being able to process feedback, critical feedback from other people. Mm. And I suppose that's the other thing I worry about. The hubris is that I would ever get that big. But then the concern with that is that, you know, at some point in time, you'd hit a place creatively where you just won't take any feedback from people. And that frightens me. So. Yeah, that's a good one. That's uh, that's when you tell your closest writing friends, like, if I ever act like this, you know, make sure to slap me. <laughs> and and you walk a fine line with that as a writer because it takes a certain amount of hubris and confidence to write freely. I mean, I love reading somebody use prose as confidence and who has that ability to just be like, walk with me. I have a story you want to hear with it. Hear it. Walk with me. And there's an incredible amount of confidence with that. So to have confidence at the right time, humility at the right time. I feel like that's a line mm-hmm. we constantly write. And if you're humble when you shouldn't be, or if you are, there are times when you really need to stick to your guns as far as your vision for a story or for a character. And then there are also times when you need to be willing to walk that back. And boy, that's that's a needle you thread over and over and over again <laughs> as a writer. Now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that's kind of fun or interesting or unique or different? I actually asked my husband about this this morning because I feel like I'm horribly vanilla when it comes to quirks. He (laughs) he said, well, you write at night, which is stupid. He's also an author. He writes in the morning. Um, So he thinks this whole being able to be coherent past 10 p.m., (laughs) this really weird thing. He'll wake up at 4.30 a.m. to write, which is, mm. who does that? Mm-mm. Anyway, so maybe <laughs> late night writing. But then I think the other thing that may be closest to a quirk for me is that I hear voices first. So um, when once I kind of have the general plot or idea of what or structure down, the writing really begins for me when 
I can hear these conversations. And I don't know what the person looks like. I don't know their name. But when I start hearing these conversations between these characters. So for me, it's about it's about the dialogue. And really similar to, you know, the sort of green screen thing you'll see if people are filming either Weatherman or, you know, sequences for a movie with CGI. It's a very green screen talking heads sort of thing. But that's, for me, that's my entry. That's my entry into it. And um, I'm guessing there aren't too many other writers with graphing calculators that they carry. But um, other than that, I, yeah, not super, not super quirky, which makes me feel horribly boring. But there it is. (laughs) Michael Mame, who is uh, the second author that I had on this podcast, he said that the most interesting thing about his writing process is how boring it is. That makes me feel not so bad. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, I need coffee, but that's pretty common. I'd say I'm happy with what I write about 30% of the time. And, you know. <laughs> when you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? I think one of the lowest parts, of course, was when when I realized that Egmont USA was closing and at that point in time, things were still going to go ahead. And my personality is one that I would rather do something than be still. So for me, knowing that the book would still come out at that low point, after having an ugly cry in front of my administrator at high school, (laughs) for me, what helped me was finding very concrete steps of things I could do. And, And that was, you know, pulling together Egmont last, Egmont's last list and, and doing that, that gave me a sense of purpose in that. I think other low points, there was one where it was after I had gotten out of the Nevada SCBWI mentorship, I felt really happy with that novel I had spent six years on. It was the only time I went to the SCBWI LA conference. And I went because I knew I would have friends there. And I'd spent money to have a critique with an agent and sat down with an agent who totally didn't get the book. And I'm not saying that in a, they just don't understand my genius. <laughs> I, I have no patience for that. But like literally misunderstood what was I was trying to do with a book. I didn't know how to tell her. And I remember coming back from that, just being like, I've spent all this time and to somebody who's a professional in the field didn't get it profoundly. And clearly I still have some work that I need to do. And it was around that time that I was trying to figure out, do I still want to do this? And I think for me, that was the question. Uh, do I do I want to still try for this? And I knew that I did, but to me, it boiled down to, is it something I still want to do? And I think that is a legitimate question to ask because there are times when you write for yourself and that's a really good thing. And if you're writing for yourself, you don't need necessarily to be published. Just that those are two very different things and there's Mm -hmm. pleasure and catharsis and so much that can happen when you write for yourself. And so for me, it was reevaluating, is it important to just get better at this or do you want to still try to be published? And that's another really hard dream to deal with because it's a dream that you don't ultimately have control over if you're trying to be uh, traditionally published. If you're self-publishing, you you do have control over that. But if your goal is to be traditionally published, you can check all the boxes and you still may not get there. And again, that's a difficult, that's a difficult dream to hold because you, you want to follow it, um, but you can't guarantee that it'll ever pay off. 
So for me, it was, do I still care enough about this to risk rejection or failing or, and I did, but I do that after every book. So we'll see, (laughs) ask me in two years. What are some of the mistakes that you made along the way that you would like to tell listeners about? So maybe they can avoid making the same ones. Well, thinking, not thinking, because if anybody had asked me what I thought, I would have said the right answer. Feeling that the first drafts have to be good. Because if anybody asked me, I'd be like, of course it doesn't. It's a first draft. But the soul deep, bone deep feeling (laughs) that there is something horrifically wrong with this draft. And I, therefore, am a wretched author that I still feel every time. So I think understanding that every new endeavor, those first drafts are just going to be hard. And it may be harder if you have these moments of inspiration, because you may have a chapter or a couple pages that are glorious, and then they're surrounded by all this dreck. And so I still can't always keep myself from being disappointed by that. And just realizing that that is part of the process. And it's a sort of static that can just go on in the background mentally and emotionally. And to realize that it doesn't mean anything, it's just static. I'd say that's probably some of the biggest mistakes I've made just in being too quick to judge myself. And I'll put this out there. One mistake I didn't make, and I hope I don't ever make, was just being nice to people. Like there was one unfortunate incident in an elevator that I'll tell you about later, but um, (laughs) it takes so little effort to be kind to people. And I think I was so aware of that when Egmont USA came and everyone started coming in, how small a community is. So this community is. So I would say one of the biggest mistakes you can make outside of what you do as a writer and with your craft would to ever just be be rude or unkind to folks. And I'm not talking about being direct. There's a difference with that. But people have long memories. And to the extent that you can treat other people as humans, in whatever form you meet them, that goes a long way. And that's to this point, and I can't hope I don't jinx it by saying that I haven't, that's one mistake I haven't made so far. Not to say that there's not room for that, but um, so. Yeah. Yeah. I teach a class on networking and I always say like, even if you are not a particularly kind person and you're not just being kind to be kind, you never know what a person is going to become. You never know the person that you're rude to, what position they're going to be in later. So mm-hmm. even if you can't be kind, just be kind, be kind for your own sake. <laughs> yes, it's it's so true. And, you know, I, again, there was a nine-year period between when I graduated high school and started college. And I was a cleaner, like literally, you know, a cleaner. Um, and it's funny how if you're doing manual work, people don't make eye contact with you. So if you're pushing a mop or some a vacuum, people don't tend to make eye contact with you. And then I also waited tables and you encounter in those positions so much casual rudeness or just that sort of, if someone's having a bad day, it sloughs off on you. And it made me so aware of what I didn't want to be. And yes, if you cannot be a good human for being a good human's sake, at least be selfish enough to keep your stuff to yourself in this industry. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? I would say be kind to people, yes. I think another is, I remember being about three, four years into crit groups or going to like local conferences or workshops. 
And one of the things that I love that I did is I tried to implement every single bit of feedback that I was given. And I always would do it in a separate file so that I never had that fear of destroying what I had. So to me, one of the best habits I cultivated was that, sure, why not? It's literally just words on a page. I can go back to what I had. So that sort of abandon of, I'm going to try anything somebody suggests. And at the same time, what I really appreciated was three or four years into the process, becoming much more aware of the sort of feedback that worked. So building that that own sense of, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. And then even sort of a notch up above that, if we're talking about the sort of metacognition of that, beginning to realize the sorts of teachers who helped me. Because I can list you know, workshop leaders or folks who've written books about writing who have helped a ton of people but didn't make my writing better. And so I can mentally acknowledge the fact that, yes, they know what they're talking about. And yes, I can list five friends that they helped, but they don't didn't help me. And for a normal pe- person who was sort of hoarding my funds to, you know, spend money on this conference or this workshop, it was super important for me to begin honing in on this person might be the bigger name, but this person is the one who talks about writing or revision or character development in a way that I get. And so this is where I'm going to put my money. So have that abandon, that willingness to try everything. But as you're trying everything, pay special attention to the sort of feedback that works. And within critique groups, it's knowing even that if this friend gives this bit of advice, it could be helpful and this, it may not be helpful in this sense. So this is my critique group in Virginia when I lived there. But for for Valiant, there was a woman in the group who was dead on whenever it, it came to any sort of emotional resonance in a scene. So if there was any amount of emotional integrity or strength, she could put her finger on it. And if she told you it was lacking, I learned that I needed to listen. She also hated fantasy. And so I remember her talking about like the first chapter or two of Valiance and saying that she loved these scenes between Savile and her father and you know how they worked. And so I knew I had done it well. And then she looked at me and she's like, do you really think you're going to need the giants? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> it's about the giants. So yeah. <laughs> that walking that line of knowing this is the feedback I'm going to listen to and Anything typically that she said, or many of the things she said about fantasy, I ignored. But I also knew the parts of her feedback that I really needed to listen to. So again, just pay attention to over time, what kind of feedback and from who, whom works best for you. So it's great advice. Yeah, I had a similar experience where someone in a critique group asked me to explain what a mage was. And I was like, oh, this is not your genre. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. And and like I said, this woman gave fabulous advice when it came to like personal interactions. But Mm -hmm. yeah, fantasy, we just are like, it's good. And she would even start (laughs) laughing when she's like, it's probably just me. But it would be like, yeah, it's just you. So. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people or even organizations who helped you along the way and how? 
Okay, well, I've talked a lot about a CBWI. I have been really fortunate to be in chapters that where I was able to find folks that I, I really enjoyed and were super helpful. So if you're writing for kids, that can be crazy helpful, I think especially in middle grade. Highlights, which surprised me, and highlights, I love the organization. I almost didn't go to them because I associated it with magazines in doctor's offices that had been like half filled <laughs> out. And again, deepest apologies, highlights, but really boring stories. So like, again, I was a kid who liked swords and mages. And I'm reading these books that are kind of, or these magazines that are kind of torn up in a dentist office. And I did not see myself in those stories or those types of stories. And so when somebody suggested a highlights workshop to me, I was like, no, no, no. Like (laughs) highlights and I do not get along, but highlights is a fabulous organization. And this sounds stupid, but they feed you really well. Like you go and you have this amazing time with people who know their stuff and it's just good. So even if you didn't like the magazine as a kid, go to highlights workshops. I was also fortunate to have you know, amazing crit groups. So I had the slush busters in Virginia and those women were amazing, just did a fabulous job of working with me. And then I've got a group here in Florida um, that took a little bit to find, but again, folks who stood by me. And then my editors have been amazing women. So Allison Weiss, who was with Egmont and was now is now with Pixel and Ink. Alex Reed, who was with Learner and helped with Swans, um, edited Swans, was amazing. And I fangirled a little bit because I was working with, you know, somebody who had ed- edited Ella Enchanted and that was just a masterclass. So, so many other people. But yes, those communities, those are the people who get you through. And I'm a little curious, your husband is also a writer. Did you meet through writing or did that kind of just like happen? We did. Honestly, it sounds like a stupid Hallmark movie. So Lauren Oberweger here in Florida, Fred had had a couple workshops with Lauren and loved it. So he knew that she had the um, breakout novel intensives that she did with Donald Moss. And so he had applied for the scholarship to their conference in 2015. And I'd had some friends who had gone to that conference and had loved it. And so being a public school teacher also applied for the scholarship and was super excited because that year it lined up with spring break and we both won scholarships and went there. And I know, right? Like again, (laughs) it's a freaking Hallmark movie. And, and any woman who writes for children, at least understands that the odds If you're straight, the odds are not in your favor as far as meeting someone. So I had not ever expected to meet a guy at a writing conference. And then I met a guy at a writing conference. So we had a week together. We were in Oregon and then dated long distance between Virginia and Florida. And then I had an opportunity to work as a tutor on a semester at Sea Voyage. So then I literally went around the world first part of 2016. And then I moved to Florida. So yes, it sounds, like I said, ridiculously cliched. And but yes, we met at a writing conference. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your latest book, Flight of Swans? So Flight of Swans is a retelling of a fairy tale that was either by the Grimm brothers or Hans Christian Andersen about a girl whose older brother princes are turned into swans through an enchantment and it is up to her 
to save them. And so I did a retelling of that. I always tell a story either because there are parts of it that I like or parts that I want to fix. Mm. And the part that I loved about the story is that you have a girl doing the saving. And the part that I wanted to fix is that somehow these dudes who had written a story about a girl doing the saving still managed to give her precious little agency and a really rotten love interest. And so Mm. I had so much fun writing a story where the girl did the saving, where she had not just endurance, but agency and where she ended up with a guy she deserved because the one in the original tales is just trash. (laughs) That was was the story I wrote. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. This has been a fabulous first podcast experience. And excellent. (laughs) As long as you have, you know, it continues after me and I didn't, you know, trash the whole thing, then (laughs) we'll be good. I've joked for a while that I want to do a podcast where I interview only Sarah's who work in publishing. <laughs> there are a lot. There are so many. <laughs> it was it was weird though, emailing back and forth with you, be like, hey Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Sarah's query in the show notes along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.